This is your Friday Daily Delivery. I'm Michael Rand. I wonder if you guys stayed up late like I did on Thursday to watch the wild fall apart. We'll talk about that uh, very soon. We got uh, a lot of other stuff coming up on the show. Greg Larson wrote a book uh, about the life of a minor league clubhouse attendant. He's from Elk River. Spent a couple of years in the uh, low class A system with Baltimore as a clubhouse attendant there. Had some great stories that he that he put in his book. So we'll talk to him in just a little bit. For uh, It was a fun interview. I really enjoyed talking to him and getting to know him a little bit more and getting to know more about his book. We'll also talk a little bit more about the Twins here in a bit. But first, the big one, what did I miss? Like I said at the outset, wild game. Kind of went late, past 11, past everybody's bedtime, some of you at least. Wow. Where to, where, to, where to start with that game? There's so much to unpack. I wrote down so many notes that I have to get to here that uh, that, that uh, I'm, I'm eager to get to it, even if the game was unpleasant. 5-2, to two, Vegas is your final. Wild jump out to a 2-0 lead early. Kirill Kaprizov sets up Ryan Hartman for a beautiful early goal. Backdoor pass, essentially. Um, tap in. It was, it was you know, everything's going well. Joel Erickson X scores not too long after that on a, on a rebound, on a shot knockdown, 2 nothing now. And then looks like the Wild's going to go up 3 nothing. X scores again on a rebound, but goal disallowed because earlier in the shift, Nick Bukestad had entered the zone off sides. Goal comes off the board. 3 nothing becomes 2 nothing. You're like, uh-oh. Momentum right there. You're wondering what's going to happen. So, I actually thought the Wild finished off the rest of that period in good shape. That while they didn't really, the play got a little bit more even at that point, but they still, the thing they wanted to guard against at that point was giving one back and feeling like you completely dominated a period, but we're going into the intermission at two one. So they got in at two zero. You're like, okay, two nothing's a very solid lead. They played a Great period, dominated a lot of possession. Um, strangely enough, um, Vegas had two power plays in that period. Wild only had one. That was that was the the officiating quibble I had in that game was was the first period when when one team is dominating the play so much and the other team gets two power plays to your one. That was strange to me. But here's the thing: the game totally changes in the final forty minutes. If if you're gonna divvy up the blame, if you're gonna talk about officiating this, officiating that. It's 5% officiating and 95% the Wild completely falling apart in that game to the point that, you know, Vegas just completely outshoots them the rest of the way. 40-16 to 16 for the game. Um, gets three goals in the second period, just a complete onslaught. And, and the Wild, you know, basically lets them off the hook, right? The, the, the goal, the disallowed goal kind of becomes a turning point, even if the momentum didn't 100% shift at that point, because 3 nothing is such a different lead than 2 nothing um, in, in any any low-scoring sport, but especially hockey. You, know, you talk about the quote-unquote dreaded two-goal lead. Well, it, it, it was that in this game. Um, Ryan Hartman, who scored that first goal for the Wild, uh, pretty much summed it up perfectly after the game. Let's, let's play a clip of his post-game availability right now. He left Cam out the dry a little bit there. Um a lot of it you know we, we gave them everything um we had no possession no work ethic no battle um we, we we got away from our game and we let them dictate um but like i said we get we gave them um everything there well, that's it right they didn't support cam talbot at all they they fell apart they stopped doing the things that had been successful early on which is a lot of you know 
good good cycling down low, you know, smart plays in your zone, smart plays in the opponent's zone. Just they were they were playing their game a hundred percent and it completely shifted. Now, a lot of that has to do with Vegas because the short answer for how this happened is probably the the, the least pleasant truth that, that you want to hear. It's that Vegas is a better team and has more playoff experience together. And I know the Wild played Vegas well in the regular season and has played Vegas well at XL Energy Center pretty much since the inception of Vegas coming into this league. But this is the playoffs. This I get that the building matters sometimes. I get that history matters. I get that when you jump out to a 2 nothing lead, you're thinking, okay, this is this is the wild team that we've seen against Vegas, but you know what? The playoffs are totally different. So Vegas is the better team. They were the higher seed. They w- were right in contention. Them and Colorado are probably the two best teams in the league. Okay, so that's that's the you know that's that's the reality of life in the West right now. This is how the West was won. This is how the West was lost. Wild, the third best team in the in the West in the West Division this season. And I don't think there's any question about that going in. So you got a better team. They come out with a jump in the second period. And it, it's just kind of off to the races. They score three times in that period. The Wild can't do anything to stop the bleeding. Can't even can't at least get to the third period tied. I think if they get to the third period at least tied, it's a different game. But when you go into the third period three two like that, then you're just you know then then you're desperate. I think there was a desperation to their game that showed up in in an, in, a, in not the best way in, in that game. I think it showed up in people trying to do too much in not doing the smart things anymore. Um just pretty much after those first two goals and the you know and then the disallowed goal, they they got very few good looks until really the final minute and a half when Vegas had already gone up four two and the Wild pulled for an extra attacker, had a couple kind of half chances that were rolling around by the net, almost went in. Not necessarily grade A shots, but you know, at least throwing pucks to the net, getting pucks through. Everything else before that was such on the perimeter. Um, and Vegas, you know, again, Vegas has something to do with that. They're a team that knows what they want to do. They're a team that knows how to limit you when they've got the lead, when they've got their game rolling. So I think frustration for sure creeping in with the Wild at that point. But let the bottom bottom line of this game is the Wild completely lets Vegas off the hook. Choke is a strong word. I saw that used a little bit on social media on uh, on Thursday night, but. Uh, when you get up to nothing early, when you've got all the momentum going, and you can't at least sustain some semblance of that for any other part of the game, um, that, that's, that's that's a tough one to swallow. That that's not the way you want to play a home playoff game where you have such an opportunity where you've stolen one on the road, you've played two really good road games, and you come out completely on fire in game three, and then it just completely goes downhill from there. So couple other prevailing thoughts from this game. One, you know, I, I talked a lot and written a lot going into this game about how, you know, the Wild, this is starting to feel a little bit too familiar, like they weren't able to score in these big moments that their high-end players weren't doing what they needed to do. You know, for 10 minutes, I was completely ready to eat my words, right? Um, it, it looked like the offense was a, a completely different story, like they were, they were going to get everything going but in the end they get two goals they get 16 shots offense is still a problem right now they absolutely need more from their top players I know Kirill Kaprizov uh 
you know, he had that beautiful assist uh, in, on that first goal. Uh, just a you know a wonderful touch to 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 envision to get that through to Hartman for you know a, what seemed like a very important goal at the time. But you know what, Kaprizov wasn't very good the rest of the game. He was a minus three for the game. You guys, that's uh, that means he was on the ice for four of the Vegas five goals. Uh, that's that's not good. You don't want to see that. Um, Kevin Fiala, he's a minus three in that game as well, and he still has no points in this series. And honestly, I think the the Eck-Felino-Greenway line was their best line. I don't think it was out there enough, to be honest. I think I think Dean Evison, for as many of the correct buttons as he's pushed this season, didn't really push the right buttons last night. I think he was kind of relying a little bit too much on the high-end, you know, the high, high-end skill guys and not, you know, leaning into the 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 Felino Greenway Eck line as much as maybe he could have. So again, easy to second guess after a loss like this, a lot to nitpick at, but I just don't think they're getting enough from their top guys. And maybe that's an experience. Maybe, like I said, Vegas has something to do with that because Vegas is paying very close attention to Kaprizov in particular and Fiala uh, also. You know, Fiala had Fiala was really good in game two. You know, so we're not going to say he's not played. You know, played well at all. And I think Kaprizov had his moments too. But you know, these are the playoffs. These these things get magnified. Like Nick Nick Benino said earlier in the week on this podcast. You know, then in the playoffs, everything is magnified. Everything's a small sample size, and when you're not producing, it stands out. Last thing, speaking of pushing the right buttons, Marcus Johansson, who had not been good in this series, the first two games, gets hurt. Early in Game 3, Dean Evison says doesn't look good, doesn't give specifics. I'm sure we'll get an update on that at some point, but would be surprising if he was available for Game 4. That leaves you with a very interesting decision. Do you go with the past or do you go with the future when altering your lineup? Zach Parisi's been a healthy scratch these last three games now, but he is one of your, you know, one of your all-time leading, you know, playoff players. He's got 77 career playoff points in 101 games. He was your leading scorer last year, leading goal scorer last year. He was your leading goal scorer two years ago. His game has fallen off, and he's fallen in the esteem of the coaches and management in this staff. Does he get subbed into this lineup now does he slide into that third line perhaps where Johansson was because I don't know if you want to disrupt what you've got going on the fourth line which has been by and large pretty good with Nick Bukestead uh Nick Benino and uh and and Nico Sturm so there's that there's that um aspect of it does Parisi come in or do you elevate the rookie Matt Boldy from the taxi squad and have him make his debut in the playoffs. It's not unheard of in the NHL. It's not even unheard of in sports here because we saw uh, Alex Kirilov do the same thing for the Twins in the playoffs against the Astros in 2020. Man, that feels like forever ago, doesn't it, that the Twins were in the playoffs? That was only seven, eight months ago, but uh, that does feel like a long time ago given uh, given where they're at right now. But past versus the future, it will be an interesting decision. I think it's probably not all that complicated because it seems like Zach Parisi would be the the natural call in in that situation but you never know I'll be interested to see what happens and uh, and how the lineup gets a jolt because this lineup certainly needs a jolt you don't want to see it happen because of injury but uh, maybe whoever comes into that into that situation can provide them a spark that they're going to need in game four because 
Tell you what, if they lose that one, even if they win that one, they're out there in an uphill climb. If they even if they lose that one, um, I don't like their chances in Game Five Monday, and this could be a short series instead of what we thought was going to be a long one. I'm Nyla Jean Myers, Senior Assistant Sports Editor at the Star Tribune. Thank you for listening to Strip Sports Daily Delivery. This work is made possible by our Star Tribune subscribers. For unlimited access to the articles mentioned in this podcast and our coverage of Minnesota sports from pros to preps, go to startribune.com slash subscribe. Joined today on Daily Delivery by Greg Larson. Um, grew up in Elk River. Local author has a book that came out in early April called Clubby, a minor league baseball memoir. Greg, welcome to Daily Delivery. And you should know right off the jump, I'm a huge minor league baseball fan. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the book in full. I've read parts of it now, um, but, but congrats, on, uh, congrats on the book and, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, get, let's, let's just at the jump. What, what prompted you to write this book and, and maybe give me your, your backstory in terms of how you came to work in minor league baseball as a clubby and maybe even just explain for someone who might not be privy to this. What is a clubby mm-hmm. exactly? Yeah. A clubby is a term of affection for a clubhouse attendant or clubhouse manager in minor, minor league baseball or major league baseball. Um, you know, I was a clubby for a single A affiliate for the Baltimore Orioles for two seasons. I grew up loving the Twins. Growing up in Elk River, I fell in love with the game through the contraction kids in the early 2000s fighting for their lives successfully, unlike the Montreal Expos who were contracted. Like That's how I fell in love with the game, and I just always wanted to be a player. I wanted to just be around the game. And after I graduated college, my only job experience was working in a clubhouse for my college baseball team. I was the clubby for them for one season. So that the only job experience I had as a recent college graduate was washing jock straps and like feeding the team. So I just went, I thought, you know what? It's 2011. I could do worse than to work in professional baseball. Happened to find a job in the Orioles organization, got into that world. And it just completely transformed my perception of myself and the game of baseball for better and for worse in some ways. So what is a, what does a clubhouse attendant do and, and how does that provide, I would imagine is fascinating, rich source material for a, a minor league baseball memoir. Yeah. A clubhouse attendant is basically in charge of anything that goes in and out of the clubhouse. I mean, mainly laundry, cleaning up garbage, washing the toilets. But the only thing that anybody cares about in a minor league clubhouse, maybe in a major league clubhouse too, is the food before and after the game. That was the biggest duty that I had to take care of. And for me, I was running scams with like the, the stadium VIP level so that I'd slip the people in the kitchen a few bucks. And then after the game, they would give me all of their leftovers and I would uh, feed it to the team and get their dues money and tips on top of it. So, I mean, I was just, in some ways, I was kind of fighting for my life the same way some of the players were just trying to move up the organizational ladder. So I saw what I saw our coaching staff, their dynamics. I saw our players' dynamics. And I also got a sneak peek into some of the visiting clubhouse dynamics as well. It's a strange world in there. So explain to me the economics of being a clubby because it seems like it's you're not, you're not just straight up paid like an hourly wage. It's almost like a hustle. And I imagine at a, at a single lay level, these guys don't have a ton of money. Obviously, there's some guys, you know, they're drafted, they got bonuses. So they've got something, but, you know, some of these guys might be like 28th round draft picks and they're making, you know, $800 a month. So how does, how does the money work out? What, what, what's the cash out for you? What's the cash in for you? It's a really weird dynamic. That is 
fortunately changing this year. But in general, players at that level, short season single A, which no longer exists, the New York Penn League that I was in also no longer exists. But guys were making about $1,200 a month. I would charge them $7 a day in dues, which was ostensibly to cover pregame spread, postgame spread, and laundry, which in itself is strange that it's the player's obligation to pay for their laundry being done and to pay for food when they have to be at the stadium. It's strange. Fortunately, Major League Baseball has abolished that due system in minor league baseball. And so in the end of the day, my job was to pay to feed the team and anything off the top I was taking as a profit. So I would do anything I could to try and short to try and do leftovers, to try and do stadium hot dogs, all that. I was making about triple what the players were making approximately, which is strange for the guy who's washing their clothes. That's crazy. That's crazy. So yeah, so you kind of like as many corners as you can cut or as many, however you can make it work. That's how you make it work. But you're also probably working every single day. Do you go on, are you just, just home games or you travel to, or how does, how does that work? I was only on, um, I was only a home clubby, okay. but I would travel a few times every season just because I wanted to experience that life. And, you know, I got to kind of play pretend when I travel with the team, I would put on a Jersey, I would take batting practice. I'd go shag fly balls. And those moments are really the moments that I cherish the most from those two seasons. And those are the moments where I really got to come full circle in a way in the book where I had these dreams of growing up to be a light hitting second baseman for the Minnesota twins. I wanted to be Luis Rivas um, back in the early two thousands. That's who I thought I could be because I couldn't hit at all. I wasn't real great defensively either, but we'll just kind of brush that aside. But I thought that I could have a chance one day and I had my half Rudy moment when I was traveling with the team on the road but it turned out that I realized that it, it was very obvious that I was not a good enough baseball player to do anything other than be a clubhouse attendant. So when did you decide to, I want to get into some of your, the stories from the book in a moment, but I just want to be curious, when did you say, I think I like, I've got enough here that this could be an interesting book. When did it become an idea for, you know, more than just a past experience, but a memoir? Early on my first season that I was with the Ironbirds. I started keeping track of conversations and I started keeping track of things. I, I had no idea what the story was going to be. I just knew that all of these dynamics that were going on of me wanting to be a player and these guys not getting paid very much would make an interesting story. And it wasn't until I finished those two seasons, I had about 285 pages of notes. And then I went into a graduate creative writing program the next year and I started writing the first draft of the book. And it's weird. Like the first time I tried writing the book, it was an expose. I wanted to show the world what minor league baseball was really like. And then shortly thereafter, I decided that it was going to be a memoir because that was far more interesting than just trying to be a journalist. I'm not objective about anything. Sure. So it's not like the, right. So it's not like just all the, it's not the dirt or anything like that, but I imagine there are some, some good, you know, some good stories that work their way into, I think before we started, you mentioned something about Dave Roberts being there on a, on a rehab assignment. What does it, what does it mean when someone who's, you know, an established player comes down and all of a sudden, you know, he's, he's kind of the God, right. I would think. In a lot of ways, Brian, Brian Roberts, Brian Roberts, uh, my fault. Yeah. Not David yep. Roberts. What am I thinking? Yeah. You're not that old. Brian, Brian <laughs> Roberts, that old. Brian Roberts, my bad. <laughs> yeah. Brian Roberts, all-star second baseman for the Orioles that 2012 season. It is a big deal, but the thing that guys in a minor league baseball clubhouse care about the most is the fact that it's customary for a major leaguer who's doing a rehab stint to buy the post game spread for the team as a thank you for letting him use the, game as a workout so brian roberts was coming off of an oblique injury 
and he was going to do a two-game stint with the Ironbirds. First game, he looked completely overmatched against 19-year-olds. He just was very obviously still injured. But he had shown up too late to the game to give me his credit card to go get the post-game spread. So after the game, he comes up. He's like, hey, man, sorry I missed the post-game spread today. I want to get it for the team tomorrow. Here's my credit card. What's the best restaurant in town? I was like, Applebee's is the best we got in Aberdeen, Maryland. (laughs) (laughs) So then no exaggeration the entire next day, all anybody cares about, they don't care about what happened on the field. All they care about is what's the post-game spread going to be that Roberts is going to get us. And that's the whole talk of the clubhouse. Well, it's a couple hours before game time. Brian Roberts still hasn't shown up. I haven't made the purchase of the food yet because he's not there. And we're all watching ESPN and we see a press conference with Orioles manager, Buck Showalter and Brian Roberts saying his rehab game last night in Aberdeen went so poorly. We're shutting him down for the season. His season is completely over. And all of us, (laughs) we're just sitting there watching it. And I'm sure everyone in Orioles nation was like, oh man, there goes our all-star second baseman. And all of us in the clubhouse were like, oh man, there goes our post-game spread. Like those are the only things that we care about in that clubhouse. So we had to get the regular crappy leftovers that night instead of the nice Applebee's apple. I love that Applebee's was the, the pinnacle too. I mean, no, no offense to Applebee's. It is a, it is a solid restaurant, but it's, it's funny that that was like, that was the, the, this was, this, this was going to be your moment to get Applebee's after the game. And it was, and that, uh, and that dream was crushed. So you, so you normally, what they're normally, why are they so, why are they so focused on food? Why is that such a why is that such a, a big thing? Is this because they're always hungry? Is it just a, a a life life in the in the miners? What what's the fascination with food? Uh, it's a lot of things. That is an interesting question. One, it's a bunch of hungry young men. Sure. First of all, who are being athletes. That's the easy answer. But I think more importantly, it's just so many things in baseball are monotonous and the same every single day. That when you have a little treat, like a change of pace with food it means a lot. And guys just look, they're deprived in so many ways in a minor league clubhouse that any little creature comfort just means the world to them. So a new type of food or something different for the spread is, it's a big deal. It's like snack time. I I did feel like I was a kindergarten teacher or a team mom sometimes cutting up orange slices for these guys, (laughs) trying to change it up for snack time for them. I think that's why it's so important. That's funny. Um, who else did you, you know, interact with in your two years there that, that stood out as either memorable characters or, you know, in particular that, you know, just just people who stood out to you and that you still remember now? Oh, yeah. Alan Mills, our pitching coach, those two seasons, you know, in short season, single A level like that, there's a lot of turnover, not just players, but in the staff as well. And Alan Mills and I were, I think, two of the only staff members that had that stayed around for those two seasons. Alan Mills, 12 years in the major leagues. He once knocked out Daryl Strawberry in a brawl between the Orioles and Yankees in 1998. Mills was a part of an early 2000s LA Dodgers bullpen that fought some fans at Wrigley Field in right field foul territory. Alan Mills is a, he's a lot of things, but one of those things, he's a brawler and, you know, he's a somewhat intimidating guy. And I was green, so green that I had no idea what I was doing. And in some ways he took me under his wing, like he did a lot of his pitchers. And he told me, Hey man, this world is going to eat you up. You have to toughen up if you want to survive here. And so he and I, he would have these conversations with me where he'd coach me to be a better clubby. And then eventually he, uh, he was the person who was throwing me batting practice at the end of my second season. And 
showing me like, hey, man, you, you really do belong here in a lot of ways, but you also don't belong here in, a, in some very important skill based <laughs> ways. That's funny. That's funny. So uh, go t- take me through the, the writing process. We've got a, a couple more things I want to ask you. The writing process where you say the first draft, right, is is more you're thinking it's going to be kind of an expose or, you know, a tell all book about your two seasons there. And then it becomes, like you say, a, a memoir. What what then did the book become for for someone who's interested in in reading this book? It became a story about a young man growing up in a game that tries to keep us all young. It's a lot of baseball. It's very inside baseball. But baseball to me is just the backdrop to explore something deeper. And that something deeper is what it's like to love a game that maybe doesn't care about you very much anymore. What it's like to love another person when you have a hard time loving yourself. And all of those things are exemplified in my baseball, in my relationships with the game of baseball, in my relationship with my girlfriend in the in those two seasons. Because, I mean, there's a lot of stories that I did not want to tell, stories about me struggling to keep my relationship alive as I was just getting sucked more and more into the baseball world, struggles that a lot of players have as well. I didn't want to tell those stories, but I realized that in order to tell, that in order to show this world as completely as possible, I had to show it in all of its beauty and all of its unsavory aspects as well. And I think that's what this book is. Did you ever, you know, when you're, when you're at that level as a clubby, are you hoping to become a, a major league clubby at that point? I just don't know what the kind of the, the chain of command is or how you, how you work your way up at that point. Yeah. I mean, that was part of my dream in the back. I think unconsciously I wanted to work my way up because I wanted to work my way up as a player myself is sure. what I was thinking. I never would have admitted that to myself, but yeah, my goal was to go down into the Orioles clubhouse. Uh, one rehab stints, we had a pitcher doing a rehab stint. So I had to go down to the Orioles clubhouse to pick up some major league baseballs. And I got to see the, like the beautiful mahogany lockers and they have these CEO chairs at every locker and they weren't fighting to, I mean, in our locker room, it was always a fight of who has enough fold up metal chairs. Somebody's always doubled up on the locker. Somebody doesn't have a chair. And I just saw all of the amenities and I thought to myself, man, I want to work in this world. And so I did have that idea of moving up the ladder, but after my second season, I thought, you know what? I don't think this is the right path for me. I think I'm an author instead. And here you are um, with with the clubby um, minor league memoir, minor league baseball memoir. Where can we get this book, Greg? It's available anywhere books are sold. Preferably, I'd like you to go through my website, clubbybook.com. That's C-L-U-B-B-I-E book.com. And you can buy signed, personalized autograph copies there. Awesome. Greg, I really enjoyed this. Appreciate you being on Daily Delivery and uh, good luck with the book and any future writing endeavors. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Enjoy that conversation with Greg Larson. Go buy that book if you are interested. And like I said, I'm a huge minor league baseball fan. I take a trip almost every year. Last year was the first one we had missed in 20 years with a group of friends. We call it the Great Baseball Road Trip. And a lot of times we have incorporated minor league baseball, especially in recent years, because it's just more fun a lot of times than the major leagues, the characters, the atmosphere at the ballpark. So, Fun to hear some stories about minor league baseball from Greg Larson, and I'm looking forward to uh, reading the book even more in depth than what I was able to do before that interview. Let's end with the cooler. Speaking of baseball, 
weird to think this given how most of his season has gone, but where would the Twins be right now without Miguel Sano in the last week? They are three and four in their last seven games uh, since uh, you know May fifteenth. That's only six days ago. The three wins they've had are directly as a result of Miguel Sano, and that's not an understatement. The three-run home run he hit against Oakland in the eighth inning to give them a 5-4 win. The three home runs he hit three days later against the White Sox to tie that game, and uh, he'll help them get it in the ninth inning. And then uh, doubleheader game two against the Angels. They'd already lost 7-1, trying for the 13th time this season to win a game that didn't go a full nine innings. They were, what, what 0-5 in seven-inning games as part of doubleheaders and 0-7 in extra inning games up to that point. Miguel Sano hits a grand slam in the first inning. They win that game 6-3, finally break through. And again, not having a great season, but all of a sudden now his OPS is 730. It is above the league average at the very least. His slugging percentage 418, also above the league average. So you want more out of your first baseman. You want more out of... Miguel Sano specifically, but he has been on a tear. I don't think there's anywhere else to put it. You know, five home runs in in a week and three you know three games that he has directly impacted, and it's just a shame that it's kind of in this moment now where so much has happened already that's hard to imagine it mattering that much. But hey, better to have it than to not have it at the very least. That'll do it for today. That'll do it for the week. Hope you enjoyed everything we did this week, including the bonus podcast. If you missed that, we did a bonus Twins podcast on Thursday. Circle back and check that out. A special delivery with Lavelle E. Neal III and Jim Suhan. Be back at it Monday. Patrick Royce should be on the show. i got to have Adrian Heath, uh, Loon's manager, on a show next week as well, plus plenty of other good stuff coming up. Enjoy your weekend. Listen to anything you missed, and I'll catch you again on Monday.